Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and receive weekly grief guidance from me, monthly group grief support calls, and the first look at upcoming books, online courses, and projects, become a patron now at patreon.com slash Just $3 a month gets you access to everything there is to see on Patreon, plus connection to a beautiful group of grievers just like you. Unlock grief support now for $3 a month and support this show at patreon.com slash Shelby Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. This week, I'm speaking to Melissa Botorf-Airy, whose new podcast, The Leftover Pieces, features conversations on life after suicide. We'll touch on the rage that often follows learning more information about a loss, how our mental health is impacted when someone we love dies, the glaring holes in our school systems that fail kids at an emotional and mental level, and how the suicide of a child changes your identity as a mother. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to create a world where grief is welcomed, normalized, and even embraced. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Melissa Botorf airy is a grief coach, chef, mom, and host of the podcast, The Leftover Pieces, launching August 7th, 2020. She created The Leftover Pieces to honor her son, Alex, who unexpectedly took his life in August of 2016. Melissa hopes that sharing conversations on suicide loss will support those grieving a loved one who died by suicide and prevent similar losses from happening to those who've not yet grieved loss by suicide. You can find out more about Melissa and The Leftover Pieces by visiting her Instagram at The Leftover Pieces. Grief Growers, I'm really excited to introduce you to Melissa Bodorf-Airy, who's been a follower of my work for a while and actually approached me about doing an episode of Coming Back because she herself is launching her own podcast about grief and loss here in the very near future called The Leftover Pieces. So Melissa, welcome to the show. And if you could uh, start us off with your loss story. Thanks, Shelby. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, I will start off with my last story. Um, well, it starts on a Sunday morning. Um, it was August 8th. It was August 8th of, of 2016. And it, you know, started like a normal, normal Sunday morning. My husband and I were doing some cleaning. I had been up and down. I had, um, not even gotten out of my pajamas yet. And I remember sitting on my bed and, and uh, he was in our master bathroom. And I said, I don't know what's wrong with me. I said, I, I don't feel well. He said, maybe you're sick. Do you have a fever? And I said, it's not that kind of feeling. I said, I just don't feel well. I don't feel right. Something's wrong. And I just kind of laid there. And about 10 minutes before that, my son, um, my youngest son had um, told me he was leaving to go um rock climbing with his friends and at the gym. And so he had, he had left. And during that time I had, you know, said this stuff to my husband and 
somewhere in the proximity of 10 to 15 minutes after he left, I heard the front door again. And um, he came up and, and walked into the room and I was already sitting on the bed, but I, again, I was still in my pajamas. This was about 1222. So it was afternoon, but um, you know, Sundays are kind of that way sometimes. And he just, the look on his face was, well, I'll never get it out of my head, but it was, something was very, very wrong. And, and I said, um, you know, Parker, tell me, tell me what's wrong. And he just looked at me and there were tears in his eyes, but they weren't flowing and he wasn't saying anything. So my mom brain went to, he's been in a car accident, but obviously he was in front of me. So I thought maybe it hurt someone. I thought maybe the car wasn't okay. I just didn't, I thought maybe his girlfriend had broken up, you know, all the things that you go to. And I got out of bed because he wasn't talking and I stood right in front of him and grabbed his shoulders and said, what's wrong? And he looked at me and said, mom, Alex is dead. He took his life in his frat room last night. And I don't remember, I would be lying. I don't even know if I've ever really asked my husband exactly what happened. I'm pretty sure I screamed. If I didn't, my soul did. Um, I know I fell to the ground and somewhere inside of about 25 minutes, we were out of the house headed to college. He was about two and a half hours away. And, um, you know, that, 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 that was the moment that my world cracked wide open and my heart shattered. And I just, I look back at that moment and even those hours that followed it and think to myself that I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I was even aware of everything that was going on because I remember making some phone calls. I can't tell you exactly the context of them. Um, somewhere my daughter and her husband and child showed up in that same 20 minutes that we were in the house and we all left in two cars together. Um, I was told by a very bad coroner that he didn't have any idea why I was coming, that I, I couldn't see my son's body. Um, he very crassly said, I have him locked in a body bag and it's got a padlock on it, so I don't know why you're coming. Um, I remember that. Um, and I said, I'm coming because I don't have anywhere else to go. Um, my son's dog, Harper, was there. And I did say, I have to come get his dog. She was like everything to him. She was his girl. She was his, you know, he said, I don't, but when he had left home, he didn't even, he said, I don't need a girlfriend, mom. I've got Harper. She's all I need. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was, he was onto something there, right? People sometimes are, are not as, are a little overrated compared to pets. <laughs> um, and so, and, and, and to kind of go back just a few steps, Alex had been home with us for five of the last six weeks of his life. He was a junior in college. He was living full-time at college in his fraternity. So um, he didn't generally come home for any, he didn't even officially have a room in the house that we were in because um, my husband and I had, who was not his dad, had just bought a house and Parker was living with us because he was still in high school, but Alex was out of high school um, when we bought the house. So he, while he stayed in the guest room when he was home, he was living full-time at college as a 21-year-old young man. And the place he was working that summer closed down so they could take some big trip or something. And so he decided to come home. And so he came home and he was home 
for five weeks from the end of June clear through July. And we even took a family vacation and did the whole thing. And his semester leading up to um, his death, um, he had struggled more than I had ever seen Alex struggle. Alex didn't have any history of depression um, or mental health issues. um, But that last semester, the spring semester, um, he had been in college two years. He was in a fraternity. He was in fraternity uh, management. And he let his grades slide a little bit. His girlfriend of a year had broken up with him. So he was, I just felt like he was going through what a lot of college kids do when they get kind of behind the eight ball with their studies and they're partying too much. And I was in touch with him. We were talking about it. He was seeing the counselor at school. Um, He had tried Zola for a few weeks, didn't like it. But, you know, we had been in touch that semester. And I even said, you need to come home. We had done all that. So when he came home, I was pretty aware, Shelby, that he had had a tough semester and as his mom wanted to make sure he seemed okay, but didn't want to bombard him the minute he walked through the door. So I kind of just let him be home and all accounts, he was, he was normal. He was himself. He was happy. He was outgoing. Everything was fine. Um, We took a family trip together. Um, Everybody thought he was perfectly fine. And before he went back the day before he went back, I took him to lunch one-on-one and sat him down and said, you know, I know how tough last semester was. You've seemed fine this summer, but are you? It's time for mom to look you in the eyes and say, are you okay? Do you need to, um, do we need to, I felt like he was kind of lost in his journey at school and that maybe he needed to look at changing universities. Um, and so we talked a little bit about some of that and he even, you know, for the first time said, you know, you're right. I could, I said, it's not, you know, he's, he's, he was a dedicated type of a person and didn't want to he took commitments very seriously. So he committed to school. They also committed to these fraternity brothers, which he wasn't getting along with most of them at that time, but was still committed. And I think for the first time I saw him go, you know what, I could, I could do something different. I can just, I said, you can change paths. It doesn't mean you've quit. It just means you have to go a different direction. And I told him he could come home and live and we'd figure it out. And when he left, I said to my husband and to Parker, I said, I think Alex will be home. He's going to, everything in my gut knew that he would either call me in a week or a month and say, you know what? I want to do that. I just knew it. But he was the kind of kid that had to go make his own decision that I wasn't going to be able to say, this is what you should do. <laughs> and so um, I, you know, he left that day to go back to college. And, um, I was, it was just me and him and Harper and we loaded his car and he, I was crying cause that's what moms do. And he, he even did the whole, why are you crying mom? And I said, cause you've been here for five weeks. I'm used to seeing your face. I'm used to hearing you. I'm, I'm just going to miss you. And he said, I'm going to be back in a week and a half. He said to Nicolette's birthday, I want to meet her baby. One of his best friends from high school had had a, gotten married, had a baby and he wanted to meet her and do the whole bit. And he said, I'll be home. I mean, there was nothing in him that wasn't forward thinking. So um, it was it was a shock to say the least. I'm stuck. I'm writing down this phrase right now that there was nothing in him that wasn't forward thinking. And I think sometimes with suicide, that's the hardest thing is that there were no tells no signs and what's interesting between um the story you just shared with us here on coming back and other stories that are shared on coming back is is this recollection of 
here's all the things that happened leading up to it. Here's the drugs that he tried. Here's the people that he saw. And so it's almost like you've built this, this case or this evidence for why this shouldn't have happened. And we live in a world where it definitely did. And there's heartbreak in that. And there's more than any other kind of loss that exists, a question of why. And I guess what I'm leading into with this in terms of next questions is like, what do you do with why? What do you do with that question? How have you, um, how have you navigated it? How have you raged against it? How have you, um, how have you carried the weight of why? It's absolutely by far probably one of the biggest pieces of a suicide loss that comes up over and over and over again in the grief process because we all know that, you know, even, even if we don't consciously know it, we subconsciously know that ending one's own life can't be an easy decision. It can't in some ways be an easy task, but we also know how fragile life is and that, you know, I've reckoned it every way that that a mother possibly can. I mean, I, I, one, I know that I'll never definitively know why. Um, Because, you know, we've, I, I, you know, I've chosen at times to believe certain things. I've based certain beliefs on, things that we do know, things that we've, you know, found out. Um, But to ever really know why somebody does anything is kind of sometimes a big mystery, right? When you think about why somebody does lots of things and you wish you could just understand why that friend did or said this or whatever. And sometimes they don't even know themselves. I mean, I think to the things that I do, and unfortunately, an act as egregious as taking one's own life still truly only takes an instantaneous decision. Um, And so I remember real early on, our our reasoning was that he, Alex was a very, very passionate feeling person. He fit the mold of somebody who doesn't want to burden other people. He was always there for everybody else. I had countless people come up to me at his memorial. And since even now, sometimes they still contact me and say, I'm not sure. I mean, several people that literally credited Alex with being here on this planet. I would not have been alive if Alex hadn't talked me through my darkest moment in high school or in college. And he was that person that was there for everybody else and didn't want, I mean, he would say to me, mom, please, please don't do that. I don't want you to do that for me, whatever it was. It was just his nature to be the person that was more comfortable. And he may have learned that from somewhere. He may have inherited it from somewhere. And, and yeah, I'm referring to myself as an empath and as a caretaker myself. I'm not very good at care, taking care of myself. So I understand the nature of, unfortunately, of somebody who once is, is feels more comfortable in the role of being the caretaker. And he wasn't old enough, and we didn't have enough things in place in our society yet, in my opinion, to have given him the toolbox that he needed to be able to say, this can still get better tomorrow. This doesn't have to, this, you know, because even in moments where we feel that way, if we have the right toolbox, 
um, I think we have the ability to make a conscious decision that even though I feel it this way right now, it can feel better. It can get better. It can change. I don't have to always feel this way. Um, but when you make an instantaneous decision to respond to something which isn't that I want to die, I don't believe any anything in me or any people that were closest to him don't believe that Alex wanted to die. I believe Alex wanted whatever he was feeling in that moment or those days or weeks or months that had been going on to just stop. And, you know, we, and I don't think we're alone, have come to find out that there are even more complicating situations to the fact that Alex became the first, but he was not the last. There have been multiple suicides in that fraternity one 20 days after Alex, one eight months after Alex, one six and a half months after Alex, one 11 months after Alex. And we think there's a couple more. I won't, but there's, there is a lawsuit and there is um, things going on because there became a person, one person. And that seems to have been an emotional catalyst um, to the decision that these people that were already in a vulnerable state, like my son at that moment, who preyed on that and, and if you will, um, probably helped them make the decision to do it. So as if all that isn't complicated, and we found that out about eight months after Alex was gone, it took finding out about the third fraternity boy, which we thought was the third death. And then finding out there was actually one, two months before that young man, that there was actually four for us to even, you know, cause people sometimes say, when did you realize it wasn't just cut and dry your son taking his life and you. And so I don't know, you talk about the whys in some ways that has made it more complicated if it's even possible. And in some ways less because the why might have been the perfect storm of situation that occurred at a university without enough resources in a fraternity that was a bad atmosphere and a person and, and a young man, my son, and then several other people subsequent to him that were in a vulnerable state and the wrong and the wrong person came in at the right time to create this horrible, perfect storm of situations that's just continued on. And so I, I will tell you that at eight months, I went from not having one amount of anger in my body to overnight being very angry. And not at Alex, just I had never had anger regarding his death in general until I thought there was another human involved in it. I think that's um, a really insightful thing to say because I think an appropriate response to grief of any kind, but especially suicide is rage. Um, but now it's almost like, now that there's a target, it's like now I can be angry because there's somebody else involved. Right. And I, you know, as his mom, I've thought many times about why am I not angry at him? And I'm just, I don't, I don't have a clear answer for that. I have, have I had moments like moments of being angry at him about little things? I absolutely have because he's my child. He's still my child. So there's times that I think about certain things or I see how something's, and I'll have that momentary irritate, like, but I haven't been angry at him not one time that I yet. And, and of course I don't, I'm not done in my journey. I'm going to live this journey the rest of my life. Um, maybe I will be at some point. Um, but right now I've, I've, I never, as his mom, I never feel anything, but 
sadness for how he must have felt in that moment. That you would be in that place that you would, you know, not want to breathe anymore. And so I just don't know how to translate that into being angry at him because he was the least malicious person I know. He was literally from a little boy. I used to say he had one of the biggest parts of any human I knew just as a person. And so there isn't anything that believes in that, that there was anything selfish about this, that there was anything. And so, you know, knowing him like I did on a heart level, I just, there's no anger to be had for it. And I don't think, I don't think very many people have had anger towards him. That doesn't say that anger doesn't belong in grief because it does. We're angry sometimes, I guess, that he's not here, um, but not necessarily at him because I think if he had had the ability to make a different decision, he would have. Yeah. And I think this points to something really key that you're, you're getting at here is that I think there's this taboo around suicide that something's wrong with you that would quote unquote, make you want to take your life. That suicide is a very personal decision, which I don't agree with that word either when it comes to suicide, but there can also be external things at play in suicide. I remember very distinctly, one of the very first episodes of coming back I ever did was with a woman, a friend of mine named Cindy Klinger, whose dad uh, took his own life after experiencing akathisia, which is extreme suicidal side effects from medication. And he tried to take his life over and over and over again. And the pattern of this was caused by something external acting as a force on him. And I think that's something with suicide we don't talk about. We always say, what was wrong with them? What were they thinking? What was going wrong in their life that made them want to do this? Instead of what what were the things that were holding them in place or what were the things that were failing to hold them in place that got them here? And, and seeing it more, I think, as you speak of as an equation or um, I know much of the work you do were like circles around food as well, but like the recipe that generated this as the outcome instead of just something being wrong or bad, um, the person being wrong or bad. Right. I, I think about, you know, I thought about this one time, how you often talk about or, you know, when, okay, people that like, I've always liked true crime. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it, I may have taken a hiatus from it a bit at one point, but I, I've always liked true crime and been fascinated by how people think and serial killers and the whole mindset's always been fascinating to me. And when you think about the fact that not to make all of us, the possibility of a serial killer, that was a bad, but, but I think everybody has the ability to behave in a certain way, given the right circumstances. It's that, that maybe just not, you know crime of passion, that kind of thing. People say, I could never. And I think to myself, I don't know if any of us know if we could never do something because if you put the right circumstances together, that whole, like I said, perfect storm, the human psyche, the human emotional system, we are, we're not, I don't think any of us are immune from a whole lot of anything. If those right things, if the right or wrong things occurred, at the right time or at the, at one time to bring it all together. And so, um, because I know I would, I would harm people if they were going to harm my loved ones or my child or my, you know, if, if I had to defend myself or my loved ones, I would. And so I don't know why the concept of the thought that in a moment we could believe that our existence is, you know, not 
wanted, not needed, we'd be delighted, everybody would be better off without us. That whole thought process isn't really that hard of a jump for me once you really stop and think about it. Um, and, you know, for myself, I have never, I dealt with postpartum depression actually after having Alex. Um, so you know, he was 21. So it had been 21 years uh, for like six months. It was, I took some medicine. I was fine. I went off the medication. I, I have mental health issues in my family. So I've been around a lot of depression and things like that. But I had been lucky to mostly dodge that scenario myself. Um, and I will tell you, that's no longer the case. I consider myself somebody now who has a mental health issues that I deal with their anxiety and complicated grief and the things that go along with everything that I'm dealing with. You know, we could start talking about all sorts of things that, you know, just have acronyms and whatever, but I know that I'll probably, some of it will probably be things that I work through and feel like I've kind of coped with and other things will be chronic. They'll be there forever. I may never sleep right again. I may never, there's certain things that I now have, um, dealt with. And because I had never dealt with depression or any of that actively before, I would have gone into this not understanding. Um, and this has brought me to my knees at more times than once. I have thought that this had the ability to take my life, um, that this grief hurts so bad. And it wasn't even so much that it was, it wasn't a suicide threat. I remember the first time I said to my husband, I think this is going to kill me. It was a physical feeling that this kind of the broken heart syndrome, I think this is going to kill me. This hurts so bad that I don't know that I can survive this. Um, and I would, I was physically, you know, on my knees the day that happened. It was probably one of you know the biggest anxiety attacks I'd had, but I felt like that that was going to happen. And since then, over the last several years, you know, I've had some places where I feel like I'm, you know, depressed, right? Some people would say rightfully so. How could you not have some level of depression? Um, and I feel like I'm a functional person. So I'm one of those people who fall under that whole check on your strong friends category. I don't do well at asking for help. Well, so having for the first time in my life come to see how you could honestly feel like you're a burden and that you don't want to be here anymore in some way has been a gift for me to kind of understand how if even for a moment Alex felt that way and what that feels like and to not have the toolkit to get out of it because that's the difference. I have looked at my husband and said, I don't care that I'm alive right now. Please don't mistake that for the fact that I have a plan to take my life because I don't. However, if it gets there, feel rest assured I will tell you and that I do have a plan. I have a plan to make sure that I wait at least 24 hours and that I talk to people and things that are a that you've put in place as a toolkit because you know in your in your in your heart and you know that it'll get better, that this is temporary, that this is something that's happening with your emotions. Alex, I don't believe in did had he didn't have those tools at that moment. We hadn't he hadn't had a reason to. They don't which is why part of what I want to do with not only the podcast, but becoming a grief coach and dealing with people with suicide loss specifically and the bigger picture working to help break the stigma is people have to understand it's just like many things in our society. It's time 
that we take this out of the dark closet and just address it like it needs to be, which is you know, mental health is health. And we have to be in young men more than anything. Young men, we have to make them understand it's okay. It's literally, it sounds so cliche, but it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to say I'm not okay right now. And to give, give us the tools to be able to help the person that says they're not okay, because I found that that's where a gap exists too, is what if you're the person that's brave enough to say, I don't feel okay, but nobody around you knows what to do with that. So it's, it's, both, it's both sides of the education that has to happen. We have to be able to be okay with not being okay, but we got to know what to do when someone says they're not okay, because that perpetuates the stigma when no one around us knows what to do, because then you feel like you're even more of a burden. This is why I didn't speak up, because now they're all looking at me like I'm an alien. Well, so it has to happen on both sides. The training has to happen and the education has to happen on both sides. Right. And I wonder if you can speak at all to um, maybe pitfalls, shortfalls, gaps in the system with the university system in general. Now, this is not an attack explicitly at the university that your son attended, but um, my mom died when I was in college and I found our university's mental health care facilities extremely lacking as well. I was paired with grad students who were getting their degrees who had never seen grief at my level before. And so I felt like I was going crazy right in front of them and that they didn't have the tools to help me either. And so I, I feel as if the systems that bring our young people into the world, I'm saying this, I'm still in my 20s, um, are not adequately equipped to teach them about grief, loss, and how to cope with feeling like this just might kill me. Not necessarily I want to die or I have a plan to die, but if I died tomorrow, that would be okay. And that's a really common thought that grieving people have and that depressed people have, and sometimes that even anxious people have as well, that if I were not here, that would be okay. And it doesn't mean there's a plan and it doesn't even mean there's an intention, but the desire is there. And, and again, in the right cocktail and the right set of circumstances, that can be really dangerous and grief inducing for themselves and for other people that they're surrounded by. So I wonder if you can speak to perhaps something that you wish was different about the university system and how it supports our, our young adults. Yeah, I absolutely can. Because unfortunately I've been living in the scenario with that. And I'm, you know, I'm going to, if people want to know, it's extremely easy to find out. So I'm going to refrain from listing the university uh, myself. Um, Mm -hmm. But where the university is concerned, um, I have found it to be extremely um, common among other university systems. In other words, this one wasn't lacking in itself. It was greatly lacking in the fact that the student body couldn't find, uh, they couldn't get appointments when they needed them. So the staffing is understaffed. The ability to treat them was extremely what I would call umbrella or tossing a blanket over it. They wanted to kind of treat anything that remotely existed as he's sad or he's stressed um, as the same thing. 
apparently the prescriptions on this campus were being handed out right and left for stuff like Zoloft, which most of of us that know anything about depression know that's a fairly common, oh, you have anxiety, let's throw Zoloft at it or, you know, Prozac or one of those common ones. And so they were throwing, you know, there's a, a whole, there's a small staff of, you know, of people that are being asked to do way, way too much. There's an overriding doctor that's signing off on scripts that aren't even necessarily appropriate. Um, I've found and seen diagnoses in more than one child um, at at this university that were given like this from an intake form. You don't discuss things like bipolar on an intake form, meaning someone that, not the person that's doing the form filling, the person that's on the other end. Um, you don't list things as chronic depression when you haven't even seen a child in therapy. You don't, you know, they're just, it, it's such a blanket, uh, you know, kind of shuffle them through cattle system mm-hmm. that is just, and, and I, and, and in interviewing for other situations, I, I mean, there's, we aren't actively doing any of it, but we've, we've had people wanting to do documentaries. There's been magazine articles. There's been lots of things that they've talked to us about um, with the case, getting all the attention it did when it was first filed that um, I found out that, you know, there was a gentleman that I spoke to with the New Yorker that um, said that his son, his college, and he's like, well, I'm 51 and he's older than I am. So I'm going to guess he was at college in this I was at college in the early 90s. He was probably at college in the early 80s. And he said even back then, he felt like he was struggling through college and there wasn't enough resources. There was nowhere to go. You couldn't really talk about anything that was bothering you. And it was really sad to see that on a general level, we hadn't even progressed much in 40 years, um, that the systems are still... um, that archaic that there's still not enough staffing. We're still just going to treat everybody the same. Oh, amoxicillin. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it, and that's the equivalency that I draw is, Oh, you have a cold or you have a, you know, a broken foot. We're going to slap amoxicillin on it. Oh, you might have chronic anxiety. You might have depression. You might be bipolar. We're just going to give you this drug you can't do that because it causes more harm than it does good. And so I think you've seen under staffing, under, um, well, there's definitely not an importance played on it after the loss of Alex. And then 20 days later, there's another young man, again, same fraternity, same exact method of death. All of it was a mirror. And then same, same again, the university and the fraternity should have had this on the front and center. There should have Mm -hmm. been campaigns. There should have been vigils. There should have been, uh, you know, things done by the mental health facility. And they lifted that giant rug and threw it right under there with the big elephant. They just 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 kept shoving stuff under the rug because they weren't equipped to deal with it. They didn't have the finance resources. They didn't have staff. They didn't have the training. And so in working with other people since then, you know, even getting involved, not personally with yet, although we've kind of peripheral started to bump up against each other. I don't know if you've ever heard of Kevin Hines. Mm-hmm. He's the gentleman who survived the the, the fall from the bridge. Um, he talks a lot about needing to educate at lower levels. We have to start this earlier. And he's exactly right. My passion happens to be for reasons that are probably understood, the college level, maybe even high school, the college and high school. But he's absolutely right. We got to start when people are young. And that means not just start with, but start with 
funding the system. I mean, they've taken counselors out of most schools. And my kids have been so long since they've been in elementary, I didn't even realize that. But most schools don't even have a counselor anymore. And if they do, they come like once a week and have to rotate, talk about over spread too thin. A counselor that's seeing five elementaries in one week, how could you give any level of care to anybody? And the universities aren't much better. And yet when they take your kid in, they say, oh, we're going to take care of your student and they're fine. We got your kid. Well, they do as long as your kid's fine. Right. Um, there, and there's a bad and there's a bad analogy too because I just made it. I I didn't unintentionally, but I did what people do and made it sound like there's something wrong with us if you're not fine. But as long as you don't have any issues occur, they're going to be able to shuffle you through and give you your piece of paper. But what about where's where's the support? Where's the the support system when you need it? Because inevitably, we live in a really hard world nowadays. I mean, I, I was raised in the 80s, and I will tell you that I look at my kids as they're being raised, and I think, what a, what a tougher world this really is. This is the social media and the everything that's dealt with. I mean, the, the amount of stress that we put on ourselves before we're ready to deal with it in today's world, I and mean, that's, that's what I have felt like with my kids, is they have been given a load of things to deal with that you're just not emotionally and physiologically ready to deal with yet and if the systems don't come in and follow that then there's a breakdown and that's that's exactly what's happened yeah and so i hear this call of do better which i think is a perpetual call of grieving people to people who are either non-grievers or working in systems where grief is not honored such as school systems and workplaces as well um but also do better sooner. Yeah, yeah. And I think that makes so much sense. And, and what a different world we would live in if we knew what grief was in kindergarten or middle school even. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because I know a lot in this interview you spoke about I'm a mom and that's what moms do. I cry when my kids leave for school. Um, and and you pictured Alex's final moments and felt them in your body. And that's what moms do. And so I want to know what his death did to your identity as a mother. This is why I love you. You asked the tough questions. <laughs> um, well, it did what it did to my life. It took it and made me completely have to redefine it. Um, I've had to, I've, I've, as a mother, it, it has, it's changed everything and it's, it's not changed some things. I mean, my children are all still three independent people, even, even Alex. So, um, I still parent my other two children on some level the same, but to say it's exactly the same, it's not one. I'm different. And um, I can't, I, I, the first year you fight that, you know, it's the raging against the storm. And I kept somehow in my subconscious, I think thinking I was going to get back to the old me. And I finally had to accept that the old me fell through the crack that split wide open when, when, you know, Alex died. And 
you know, that whole shattered heart thing, that's the, the you know, I, I feel like a few of the pieces left too. Like I put it back together and my heart still works and it's still there, but it's not the same. There's some pieces missing that are just going to always be gone. So I have to function with the missing pieces and um, yeah, I'm left with the leftover pieces. That's kind of where that came from. There's a story that goes along with it. There's there's a story that goes along with it that I can tell if you want. It's pretty brief, but you know that's the, the jumps of, of where that came from. And um, because Alex, every piece of a family, as you know, makes the family function as it does. So once that family member's gone the family doesn't function the same. So every member has to acknowledge the loss and what it means to them. And that's a difficult dance to do within a family, as you know, because we grieve very differently. Um, So I've had to just continue to be communicative with my kids and say, you know, when I wasn't doing as well, I'm not doing as well right now. And I'm sorry, or I'm failing this piece and I'm sorry, or I'm going to do the best I can where this is concerned you're going to have to tell me too what you need because I also know what they need is different. So there isn't, it's, it's messy. And at times it's sad and scary and ugly. There's also a lot of joy and laughter and happiness that can occur too. If, you know, if you let that happen, when you have all the memories and things and deciding how to keep their memory alive, there can be good things that that grow from that as well. Um, But I kind of had at one point accept that I wanted to kind of take everything down um, you know, we we sold a business, we sold a home, we, well, we sold two businesses and a home and everything in it so that we could travel the country um, and be partially retired on purpose because I one day just decided I couldn't do my life the way it was anymore than my life the way it was didn't work without Alex in it because as my child, he was, he hadn't been in my daily life for a long time as far as physically. But he, your children as a mother, even if for some reason you're not talking to them or whatever, just knowing they're out there and okay is 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 enough. And when that's not the case anymore, um, it just takes a part of you and, you know, just irreparably damages it. So for me, I had to take my life down to what for me felt like starting over kind of simply you know, get rid of all the clutter. Literally my house felt like clutter to me. I didn't want to clean it anymore. And I'm an extremely clean person. So that's a big deal. Like I hired a maid to come in. I said, that's, that can, I can control that. I can have someone come in and clean. And, and I sat more in that first year than I'd probably sat in 40 years. Um, because I'm not a sitter, I'm a doer, but I sat in stillness and quiet and reflection and all the things you sit in. And it's, I had to allow the change. I had to allow the feelings and I had to say, I'm just going to burn all this down and I'm going to let whatever needs to grow from the ashes grow up. And these are the people that are still here and they still fit into this, but it's not going to look the same. And to try to make things look the same wasn't, wasn't working because they just, they just don't, they just don't. He's too, He's too big of an important part of the family to say, well, we'll just pretend he didn't exist and go on with this tradition or that. that." And I had to give myself permission to do things differently and to realize that I was going to be different. And until I was, so then I thought I'd done this thing where, okay, 
I've stripped my life down and we're going to rebuild and we're going to get out there and, and live, live simply, live more genuinely and figure this out. And so I defaulted to what I knew as a retired executive chef and thought I'll do food and I'm going to write a cookbook. And I went along this way for about a year, Shelby, before I went, literally looked at my husband one day and said, I don't give two rats patooties trying to keep it PG for you here. Cause I sure as heck wouldn't normally say patootie. Um, I don't give two rats beeps about teaching people to cook in an RV. I had already started and was already following my path and wanted to, wanted to be delving into grief work and doing something that mattered to me. And I said, he said, what do you want to do? I said, something that matters. And this doesn't matter. I don't, and it's not that people eating don't matter and people reading a cookbook don't matter, but it just didn't to me anymore. It just didn't matter. And so I had that second, you know, realization of what I was supposed to be doing, which was nurturing the new self and growing into the new version of who I was going to be. And my goodness, that's hard because I'm 50 freaking one years old uh, to have to grow into an entirely new version of myself. Wasn't something I planned to do at this point. That is no (laughs) joke. And so, um, you know, to embrace it when you don't recognize who you are and how you respond and the way you think about things. And I was even apologetic about it probably around year three about, I'm really sorry that I'm maybe not this way about this or the old me would have done this. And now I'm at the point at almost four years that I'm starting to shed some of the apologetic, I'm sorry, I'm not that way anymore, whatever, to just what it is. <laughs> and my dad used to say it is what it is. It was one of his things. And I have always been, I, my dad died when I was 30 years old at age, he was 48. Um, took me. That's how I thought I knew grief. I thought I knew grief because I had three tiny children who lost their grandpa, who was everything to me besides those kids. And he was diagnosed and gone within four months of lung cancer at age 48. And I thought I was going to have him for 40 more years. Um, I thought I knew grief and this knocked that completely out of the ballpark because I, this, uh, this, this, and that's what we learn about grief is no two griefs are the same. Right. Um, And I didn't grieve my dad properly. This has, this has actually hit a lot of things. You know, when you, when you get a big grief, sometimes you find out that you didn't do it very well the first time around. I spent more time um, grieving my mother's husband for my mother than I did grieving the loss of my father. And I actually had, it, I can't even take credit for that, that, that saying, but I had a friend who said that to me just about a year into my dad's loss. She said, it's time for you to stop grieving your mother's husband and start grieving your dad. And I went, oh that's what I was doing. I was, she needed taken care of. My mom wasn't emotionally stable, whatever. So I slipped into the role kind of of my dad and worried about, oh, my mom's lost her husband. My mom's like, I lost my dad. <laughs> and he was like my world. I loved my dad. So I've never gone along with my mom. We've never been close, but I loved my dad. So grief is just a tricky and life is tricky. And so to realize that I had to do this all over again at this age and to finally have, um, but to say I've embraced it doesn't mean I like it. <laughs> um, Can you say that again, please? <laughs> uh, yes, because I think sometimes people do question you that if you say I've embraced the journey that I'm on, they want to go, you've embraced that your son is dead? Absolutely freaking not. Beyond a shadow of a doubt would take everything I own. And I would take, I would take his place without even blinking. I, but I can't. I can't. It is what it is. 
things happened the way they did. I will spend my life dealing with it. It's never going to feel any better, but I'm stronger. I'm surviving. I get up every single day and I still can some days suck. Some days maybe I get back into bed or whatever, but you just, you just keep going and you just learn to live this new normal. And, um, I get in some way because I don't have a choice. I've learned to embrace the fact that when I have good days, which are more than I don't, um, that it's okay to say, this is a chance to have this maybe was the journey I was supposed to have. And maybe, maybe I can help save one more person, or maybe I can keep one more mom out of this club. You know, um, maybe I can shine Alex's light bright enough that some people can still know who he was as a person because his life was so good and so important. And one of the battles in suicide loss is to not get so caught up in that moment that they died. Yeah. And remember the life that was behind the death, all the life that preceded. Yeah. And that's the, their legacy is their life. The reason we filled, uh, you know, five, 600 people into a memorial service and all the people that reached out did and still do. And all the people that are doing things for Alex, I have friends of his that are carrying ashes all over the globe. Um, you know, I, the, the, the impact he had was his life, not the moment he took it. And that's a, that's a hard distinction sometimes. It is. And I think um, that's just a perfect place to let people know where they can find the leftover pieces so they can access more of your story, more pieces and moments of Alex's life as well, and uh, the support that you're offering out into the world. Well, everything that I'm doing is the leftover pieces. So I can be reached at Melissa at the leftoverpieces.com. My Instagram is the leftover pieces. Um, I have not tied that to Facebook yet, but will. So that will be the leftover pieces at some point. Um, and so everything's just under that. And obviously, you know, my name. Um, but, you know, my, my goal in the podcast is to, to be a place. I want people to have what I feel like I needed in the beginning and beyond even now, you know, cause I have places I go now for my own self care. You you're and one me of both. Them. <laughs> well, you're one of them. I mean, I mostly, except for when I'm moving or something, attend your monthly, you know, uh, what do you, what do you even call them? Your monthly meetings, but I, I know you call them something, <laughs> but you know, I'm a, I'm a pro it's privileged to be a part of your Patreon group, to be able to look at you as one of my places to get, support. And um, so I want to be a place that people can find tools, they can find hope, they can find I'm, I'm a pretty out there person, I'm not going to promise it's always going to be um, nice and tied up neatly, because this is a messy stuff. Um, but I plan to tackle all topics surrounding suicide, suicide loss, suicide prevention, mental health awareness, those types of things. And kind of let it see where it needs to go based on what people want from it. But I want to be that kind of safe space to come because I think for me, the biggest thing that I needed was somebody else to just, even if they didn't say anything, the first time I looked in another mother's eye, whose young man had taken his life to suicide was something I can't explain. 
it's just sometimes you need to be with people that just let you be whatever it is that you are at that moment. And sometimes you don't need to say anything. Um, and so I, I want to be that space for people where that we can all learn that there's still hope to live a good life. And it's, it's, you know, it's, I think you've said it before, if it's not you, it's somebody else that I've listened to a lot, but that, you know, I want to concentrate on living an and life. You can be happy and sad. You can be, you know, you don't have to be or, and a lot of people think that if you're not sad about your son, then you must not miss him. So you have to be happy or sad. Um, that's not true. Um, so I want to help people understand that they're they're that they can, they don't have to move on because to me, moving on is leaving something behind, but moving forward, you can still take that person with you that it's okay to be able to move forward. Um, in your life, taking your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, whoever you've lost with you as part of your growth and your new self and the way that looks and not realize that you have to get over it or move on from it because that's what society thinks. So, and it's not true. So we have to educate people, but yeah, I want, I want the leftover pieces to be that space. Um, and you know, as you know, it'll help me too. I'm sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> There's always some, some moment where you go, well, this, this will maybe help me because I don't understand it all. And I don't have all the answers. So and I don't know that we ever will. I don't know that we're supposed to. Right. We can keep looking. We can keep searching. But I love what you said about moving on versus moving forward. And I love that with moving forward, there's not a requirement that we forget. And I think that's the case with moving on. People say, oh, I'll just move on. It's like, oh, that, that, that implies that I need to leave them behind. And that's right. over my, pardon the expression, but over my dead body, will I be leaving them in the past? Um, right. So climb on board. You're coming with me, mom, Alex, friend, brother, uncle, sister, coworker. You're all coming with in the future. Yeah. Right. And I think that's so fittingly named as the leftover pieces is whatever, whatever's left, whatever we have left here is what comes with us. And we are all composed of each other's leftover pieces. Exactly. And for me, it's about trying to make the leftover pieces be okay, be enough. Because when that was said to me, here's that 20 second story. When that was said, it was said to me almost, I think, in a negative connotation, as in when Alex died, we also lost Melissa. I'm protecting by not using the right terms here. But and the person then said, we were left with now we're left with the now now we only have the leftover pieces of her. And when that first hit, it went wonk and hit me like right in the chest. And I went, because mm, that's what I was trying not to do was make the people that the person that said this feel like I was any less or cared them about them any less. I was still trying to be everything I was. And that, that, that was the first moment. It was about a day later that I something like an epiphany hit me. And I went, why do the leftover pieces have to be bad? Like, I really, it is that I only have what's left after his loss. It doesn't mean that putting those back together can't create something equally as beautiful. It's just going to be different. And so I suddenly embraced what I think was meant to be this stabbing insult. The person has yet to know probably what's going on. We'll see what they think <laughs> if they ever figure it out. But <laughs> when they go, wait, that's because of me. She's done that. Someday, if they ever acknowledge it, I'll give credit where credit's due. But um 
you know, in the meantime, it's like, um, it's true. And I, I even found myself going, you know what, when you have a leftover piece of chocolate cake, that's not a bad thing, right? So leftover pieces <laughs> in this world are not necessarily bad. So, okay, all I got is what's left over, but we're going to work with it, right? <laughs> well, and I love this too, because like the composition changes, but the value does not. And that's, right. and that's a really beautiful and crucial thing that I think people forget about loss. So I'm really excited to see where this goes. And I love that you're allowing it to be this, this living, breathing thing that changes with your grief and the things that you're learning as well. Um, so Melissa, thank you so much for coming on, coming back to share Alex with us, to share yourself with us and to uh, announce the launch of the leftover pieces. I'm really excited to see what our listeners think of your work as well. Thank you, Shelby. It's been my pleasure. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Coming Back listener turned guest, Melissa Batorf Airy, for joining us today to share your story of suicide loss and your mission to support others grieving similar losses. It's always so, so good to welcome another person to the grief space who's shining a light on what it truly means to grieve. Melissa came back by uncovering more information about the loss of her son, banding together with moms who'd faced similar losses, and managing her changed mental health as a result of the loss of her son. You can find Melissa's podcast, The Leftover Pieces, on August 7th, 2020. For release information and so much more about Melissa's story, you can follow her Instagram at The Leftover Pieces, and you can find that link in the show notes. If you'd like to get online grief support for just $3 a month, pledge to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia. You'll instantly unlock access to weekly grief guidance prompts and monthly live grief support calls with me. Our next live support call is happening Monday, July 27th at 7 p.m. Central Time. Thank you so very much this week to Cheryl, Elizabeth, and Shivani, who are now supporting this podcast on Patreon. I am endlessly grateful to you. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing the space and time with you today. I see you. I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.